Now, this passage today that we have, um, that God has brought us to uh, this morning, teaches us all about a God who speaks to us. He's a God that speaks, a God that is testifying that I am the Lord and there is no other. And to a certain degree, as we uh, are all here, everyone in this room probably agrees with that statement, that God is the God that speaks to us. He's the God that uh, has made himself known throughout all of human history. And so we have some mutual agreement in this room where you probably uh, wouldn't have accepted an invitation or even woken up early to, you know, try to attack all the ice that's on the, that's left on the road that might have frozen over again last night. But we have mutual agreement that God has spoken. And so we're here to try to know and to understand what has God actually said to us. And so I think if I was trying to convince you today that God is the God that speaks, it might be rather boring. But in the same way, it would be boring for, it'd be boring in the same way that it would be boring to teach my six-year-old to count to six. My six-year-old knows how to count to six. However, I have a younger one that has no idea how to count to six. Uh, I, I think he might be German or something. He only knows one, one number, and it's nine. And he says nine over and over and over again. And so if I'm, if I'm t- trying to tell him, hey, how old are you? If I ask him, how old are you, son? He goes, nine. He's two years old. If I, if I ask him, how many dolphins are on this page, Canaan? How many dolphins? He goes, nine, 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 nine. I, I, I don't know. I think we laughed at it one time. And because he's a jokester, he's just like, hey, anytime I associate numbers with my family, they laugh whenever I say the word nine. So I'm just going to roll. I mean, he's just milking it as long as he possibly can. And so um, I need to teach him. I need to actually teach him how to count to five. I need to teach him how to count to six. I don't need to teach some, some people this. And what's interesting here in this passage that we are, are, are really unpacking today is that there's an interesting principle that Jesus brings up. And the principle is this, that, he, that whenever he testifies about himself very plainly, whenever he's speaking plainly about him, himself, he's trying to help us know that God has spoken that I am he and that the scriptures have testified about, about me. And because that is so plain, we need to understand that it is as plain as we say it in, English, in, in our English language. God has spoken. The most important entity, the most important person, the most important one has spoken to us. So therefore, how should we live in light of what he has said? What should we do in light of what he has said? And Jesus starts out real humble, right? He says, if, I, if I'm the one, if I just testify about myself, you know, that's just me bragging and showing off. But he says all throughout this passage, listen, it's not just me that's saying this. John said it. Remember John the Baptist? He opens up uh, John the Apostle, talks about John the Baptist all the way back in chapter one. If you're all the way back with us at the Kemp Center whenever we started the Gospel of John. Says John has been testifying about me for a very long time. In verse 37, it says, God the Father has testified about me. And then he says, God has spoken through the scriptures in verse 39. He also says that Moses has testified about me. And then he says, all the things that I'm doing, remember the context here, he just healed a lame man. All the works that I'm doing are speaking. This is verse 36. Uh, I'll throw that up on the screen. It says, for the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. 
They're all proving the validity of Jesus' testimony that I am God. I have spoken. I'm the word of God. I am the word. I'm the way, the truth of the life. In the life, no one comes to the Father except through me. We worship this God. We worship the God who speaks. We worship the one who said, let, let there be light, and light just appeared out of nothing. Uh, rivers, oceans, trees, skies, moon, everything came into, an, um, came into existence out of obedience to the very words of God. And that's really, really important that we have to see. Because I think for most of us, that six-year-old stuff, right? I get this. I'm here, Cody. I, I, I understand what you're talking about. I, I get it. But there's knowing and then there's knowing, right? There's actually knowing something and then there's really knowing something. Have you ever tried to communicate something really scary to a friend? Like something like you have a friend, let's just say for sake of a, uh, the analogy or for the sake of the example, it's a, it's a female friend and you say, hey, Becky, um, there's a spider on your shoulder. There's a spider on your shoulder. And Becky goes, okay, yeah, whatever. There's a spider on, there's a spider on my shoulder. Ha, you got me. And then she looks down and you weren't lying. How do, it, there's one instance where Becky says, okay, yeah, you're kind of a trustworthy person. I think I believe you. There's a spider on my shoulder. And so she can say, yeah, I know that. I agree with you. I, you tell me that there's a spider and then there's knowing but then there's really knowing. And her really knowing it is her freaking out, moving her, contorting her body, hitting or screaming bloody murder and getting that thing off of her as fast as she possibly, as fast as she possibly can. And so there's knowing and then there's knowing. And here in the Bible Belt, I think there's a lot of intellectual knowing and then there's some action orientation. There, there's intellectual knowing and then there's action oriented knowing. Which one do we have? Do we know that the word, that the Bible is actually the word of God intellectually? Or do our actions, do our life actually manifest that we, we trust that what we see on the pages of sacred scripture are, is the word of God himself speaking to you and to me? See, there's knowing and there's knowing. I'm, a, I'm afraid that there's a lot of us in this room that can make an A on the theology test of what the Bible actually is. But does the action of your life reflect what you say that you believe what the Bible actually is? So the question for all of us is, is your faith in the Bible action-oriented or solely intellectually based? That's what Jesus answers for us today. And we need to dive in and really see what Jesus says about all of this. Because what we need to see here is that we need to understand that you might not actually believe that the Bible is the word of God if it has never affected your life. Now, that, before you say, okay, Cody, are, are you really heaping all this judgment and guilt and shame on me? No, I'm a fellow struggler. But this passage comes with a warning and it comes with a promise. And so the warning here is obvious. The warning is very obvious. Let's read verse 39. Verse 39 says this, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have, um, you have eternal life. And these are the things that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. You refuse to come to me that you may have life. 
And so he's saying there's a way of intellectual knowledge of what the word of God is. And you can search the scriptures. You can look at the scriptures. You can read the scriptures. You can say that they're actually the word of God. And Jesus might look at you and say, depart from me. I didn't know who you were. So there's the warning. There's the warning that we can be duped oftentimes in the Bible belt in a Bible saturated culture into saying, yeah, I believe that at some point in my life. And yet, uh, it's really just something that I kind of post on my Instagram every once in a while. It's really just something that I kind of go to as a placebo effect, that I want it to make me feel a little bit better. I don't know if it actually works. I don't know if I've actually worked it deep into my soul. It might just be a placebo for me. It might just be something that I go to every once in a while, and every couple of months, whenever I feel like I need a little religious pill, I pop that in, read a couple of verses, go to John 3.16, go to Jeremiah 29.11, and all the, other, all the other cliche verses. Read those, get a little bit of religious encouragement, and then I move forward, and I move forward. But what is Jesus saying here about Scripture today? What he's saying here is that the Bible is actually God's Word speaking to us. And you say, Cody, you might be saying, Cody, that sounds so exclusive. That, uh, uh, what room is there for other people from other cultures and other religions that have differing viewpoints than Jesus right here? It reminds me, and I'm sure this um, probably pops in your head, especially those that have, have been to some university in the last couple of decades. You remember the, uh, the whole, whole parable, I think it started in India, about the blind man and the elephant? You know what I'm talking about here, the blind man, man and the elephant. As the story goes, there was a king that was telling a story, and they had, all had these religious disputes about what was actually right. And so the king tells a parable. In the parable, he says, let's get three blind men, throw them into a pit, and there's an elephant in the pit. And what, what, uh, what do we need to, to do to try to describe what the elephant's like? Well, he asked each one of the blind men individually, uh, what is an elephant like? And the one that was by the trunk said, oh, an elephant, as he was feeling the trunk, is kind of like a snake. And then the other blind man said, no, no, uh, he was at the tusk. And he says, no, uh, uh, an elephant is really like a spear. And the other one was by the side of, by the, side of the elephant. And he touched and he's like, no, 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 elephants are like walls. And, and you get the moral of the story that the, the, that the Hindu uh, prophet is trying to try to communicate. And he's like, well, um, what they need to do is they don't need to be so harsh or exclusive about what the elephant is. And if they work together, they could actually um, define what the elephant actually is. And, and the moral of the story is that's what religion is like. All religions just see a different part of the elephant. And if you see a different part of the elephant, if you would just humble yourself... And if you just humbled yourself and worked together with other people that had differing viewpoints all over the world, then you could have a fuller picture of the elephant, or you'd have a fuller picture of who God is. But here's the problem with all that, because that sounds really humble, right? That sounds really inclusive. That sounds really tolerant. That sounds like something that we should really accept and kind of adopt into a, I feel like the world would be so much better. We'd be so much more calm if we all just adopt this tolerant mentality. But here's the thing. Leslie Newbigin, who was a missionary in this part of the world where this was very, very popular, he said this. He said this. Um, that the parable was claiming a form of uh, was claiming something for himself, the speaker, but denying it to everyone else. He said, I couldn't figure out how to, how to communicate um, how Christianity would confront the parable of the elephant and the blind man. But then it finally came to me. 
that who can actually see in the parable? It's the person telling the story. See, what the person that's telling the story is saying is that I see the whole elephant and they need to work together and be more inclusive so that they could be like me and actually see. And so what, you, you see, see the point that I'm trying to make? When Leslie Newbigin said, he's like, he was withholding, he was putting on judgment and saying, you shouldn't judge according to your narrow perspective because I am a relativist. I'm the one that sees the whole elephant and everyone just needs to be exactly like me. But he couldn't say that. He couldn't say that everything is relative unless he said himself that I am the only one that sees. I'm the only one that sees. And so the story... Um, the story, what it's doing is it's trying to communicate something that is a cyclical argument that doesn't actually make any sense. If you, if you want every, all things to be relative, then that statement that all things are relative are relative, and then it's a mute statement. It doesn't matter whatsoever. Uh, all things can't be relative except for that one statement of absolute certainty. It's the difference between objective and subjective truth. And he's saying that the only, only way that object of truth has to exist is if there's actual relativism. And that doesn't make any sense at all. And so Leslie Newbigin points out that first, the person that was telling the story is actually a hypocrite because he's denying to everyone what he only gives to himself. And then secondly, secondly, he points out that what if the elephant actually spoke what if the elephant actually spoke whenever the blind men were in the pit? And he said to them, hey, I'm an elephant. I'm not actually a spear. I'm not actually a snake. I'm not a wall. I am an elephant. I'm bigger than, I'm bigger than what you think I am. And let me describe to you who I am. And what, Christ, and what Leslie Newbigin has set, uh, says whenever he's dissecting this entire parable is this. He's saying that, he's saying that you know what Christian, Christian faith actually is? What Christianity actually is? Is that Jesus is actually God who came down to earth and communicated this is what God is actually like. This is what God is actually like. He verified who God was. And this is so important because whenever we see that God spoke to us, that he's the God that speaks and says, you don't need to try to earn your way. You don't need to try to put all your theological minds together to figure out who God is because I am the God that comes down and communicates with you. You don't have to figure this out by yourself. You see, this puts an end to the claim that Jesus is just a good moral teacher because Jesus, whenever he came down, he says, I am God. I am God. And therefore, he can't just be a good moral religious teacher if he claims to be God, because then he's either a madman or he is exactly who he said he is. And if he's a madman, we should ignore him. But if he is who he says he is, we should bow down at his feet and we should worship him because he claimed to be God. See, believing that Jesus is who he actually says he is is not exclusive at all. It's actually quite humble. It's really, really humble because it proves that we weren't smart enough or righteous enough or more worship or generous enough for, to earn our way to God. It proves that God knew us so well through and through that he had to come down to us. He had to communicate um, who he was and he had to make a way when there was no way. You see, the gospel is that we needed God to come down to live perfectly in our place to die the death that you and I should have died because of our sin and to raise from the dead so that you and I can have the assurance of newness of life. See, this is the good news of the gospel. And in, in order for us to know God, we need, to, we need this. 
We need this God to come down and to speak the truth to us. And our passage today basically is Jesus telling us, well, hey, God has spoken. God has spoken. Are you going to listen to him? God has spoken in multiple ways. Verse 37 says, God, um, the father who sent me has bore witness about me. His voice you have not heard. His form you have never seen, and his word is not abiding in you. you. You search the scriptures thinking that in the scriptures they have some guru eternal life uh, saying that if you just memorize, then you would be okay. But he's saying that the word of God is supposed to point us to the person of God who we were supposed to have a relationship with. Jesus is saying that the scriptures are God's word. What do you say that they are? Because there's really two ways that you can look at the Bible. And my fear is this, is there's two different ways that we look at the Bible in this room. It's either a human book written by man seeking God, or the Bible is a divine book written by God who is seeking us. And that's what, the Bible, that's what Jesus actually claims that the Bible is that the Bible is God's word speaking to us. It's about a God who is pursuing you and pursuing me. This is what the Bible is trying to communicate. And this is what Jesus taught all throughout, all throughout his, uh, his teaching and preaching uh, um, ministry. In Acts chapter four, Acts chapter four, this gives a perfect example of what the word of God actually is according to the Bible. Acts chapter four, this is Peter um, talking. He says, and when they heard it, they lifted their voice together in God and said, sovereign Lord, this is a quote, by the way, of one of the Psalms, sovereign Lord who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father, David, your servant said by the Holy Spirit. So what is the Bible? It's a book written, written by man that God was uh, infusing with his power to, to not give any sort of mechanical dictation to where he was just listening in the ear and just say, now say this, now say this. But use, his per use every single author's personality. Um, this is called the plenary verbal um, insp inspirational view for you nerds out there that wonder, wonder about that type of stuff. So plenary, plenary verbal um, to where he was speaking to, he was speaking to the prophets and the apostles, and he was using exactly what they were writing to be the exact words of God. They were not under some trance. They were not, they were not mechanically dictating um, the, a manifestation or a theophany that was sitting right in front of them. As they were speaking, just as Acts chapter four says, came out of the mouth of our father, um, Father David, your servant, but he said it through the Holy Spirit. He said it through the Holy Spirit. And this is Jesus's view. This is Jesus's view of the entire Bible. And here's the thing. If the Bible is simply about him and not from him, you cannot truly know him. You get, you get what I'm saying there? If the Bible if the Bible is simply about him and not truly from him, how can you have a relationship with him? You see, uh, I've read a lot of books about Martin Luther. I've read a lot of books about John Calvin. I've read a lot of books about R.C. Sproul. I've read a lot of books about all these early church fathers. And guess what? The books are really helpful to know a lot of things about these people. But it doesn't give me a personal relationship with them. 
in, in Christianity, at the core and at the essence means that we have a relationship with God Almighty. The only way you can have a relationship with God Almighty is through the Word. It's through Him actually speaking to you. We should not treat our relationship with God any different than we treat a relationship with a friend. I don't have a relationship with a friend if we never talk. You can say, oh, we're Facebook friends, right? It's like, I stalk them a little bit, all right? I mean, that's not a real friend. That's not a real friend. A friend is someone that you share meals with, you break bread with, you eat good food around the table, you laugh with, you enjoy, you enjoy each other's presence. In the same way, do you have a friend in Jesus? The, the way that you know that you have a friend in Jesus, do you have a open line of communication with God? Therefore, do you believe that God is speaking to you whenever you open up the pages of Scripture and read it. What is your view of Scripture? You say, oh, well, Cody, I just have so much trouble with the Bible. I just have so much trouble with the Bible. It's, you know, it doesn't talk about dinosaurs enough. It doesn't talk about what Elon Musk is doing with spaceships and stuff. Like, I, I just have all these questions. I just have all these questions. And I, I, I really don't know how I, I view the Bible. Well, okay. Okay, granted, doesn't talk about dinosaurs a whole lot, doesn't really talk about space a whole lot. But here's the thing. Have you, have you taken the humble position here? Have you taken the humble position with all your doubts? Because the humble position would, would say that, okay, Jesus thought this about the Bible, and I claim to have a relationship with Jesus, and if Jesus thought this about the Bible, then I'm going to trust my Lord, Master, Savior, and Friend and what he thinks about the Bible more than my own subjective feelings about what I think about the Bible. Because what hap- the, the non-humble position is this. You elevate your own wisdom, your own experience, your own, uh, your own intellect, the own, the own way that you're processing through um, struggles and um, cultural, mo- cultural moment issues and how, how God views different things in the book of Leviticus, you're elevating your wisdom and intellect as the ultimate authority and you're putting scripture underneath your authority. That's what you're doing. That's what you're doing. Whenever you question it, you just say, I, 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 I have trouble with the Bible. I'm not saying don't explore. I'm not saying whatever it says, just, just believe it, no matter what, whether you've ever read the Bible whatsoever. I'm saying as you explore it and as you read it, let it investigate who you are. Let it Give it the benefit of the doubt and allow it as it's shaping your worldview. Allow it as it's shaping your worldview to be the ultimate authority of your life. Allow it to. And say, God, and then wrestle with God in the midst of it. Say, God, this is, this is hard. This is hard. I've had to do this multiple times, multiple times in my walk with the Lord. Like, Lord, I don't know what this means. I don't know how, how to answer uh, my friends that don't believe the same way that I believe about this particular issue. I have no idea. And it sounds like they're right. It sounds like um, the progressives are right over here. It sounds like the liberal theologians over here. It sounds like they're right about this issue. And I've had to wrestle, wrestle with God. But by God's grace, and I, I, I call you to the same ethic. I call you to the same ethic. By God's grace, God has kept me to say, you know what, but... I trust you. There's a deep level of trust that I have in the authority of Scripture that you're speaking to me through this book, that you are trying to search my own heart. 
in, in this book that whenever I have, I've dove and searched the scriptures before, it's as if I'm talking and relating with a dear friend. And so what I've done, what God has kept me in, in all those things is he's kept me with a view of scripture being the ultimate authority and I have to work out my relationship with him even though sometimes we disagree. But I, I, um, I, I encourage you, are you taking a humble position or are you taking an authoritarian position whenever it comes to your struggles with the word of God? Which is it? Which is it? And so I encourage you, take, take up that perspective, take up that perspective and to really think through what it means. Really think through what it means to obey and to trust the word of God. And you might be saying, like, Cody, I don't like that because it, it almost sounds like you're demanding that I be exclusive about some of the claims of Jesus. And I think, I think, um, you might be saying to me, I think that all good religious people go to heaven. Well, listen to me. Listen to me. That sounds really, really humble on the surface. But I promise you, I promise you that you have a standard you have a standard and burden of truth that you think is open and open um, and not exclusive, but I promise you it is exclusive. We all have a standard, whether you want to be an open and inclusive person or not, of who's in and who's out. It might be, it might be those that uh, castigate blame, or t- it might be those Christians that, say, uh, that stand on the street corners and say, oh, all you people are going to hell for this, that, or the other. You might be saying, those people are definitely, definitely out. We all have a standard. No matter what your view of Scripture is, we all have a standard of who's actually in and who's actually out. And I, and I bet if you drill down on what your standard of being in or out actually is, it will become pretty exclusive at the end of the day. Because let's just take the example of um, sexually immoral people. He's like, I think everyone that is a good religious person, except for those sexually, sexually immoral people, well, who does that exclude? That excludes, it excludes David, excludes um, Paul. It excludes almost every single um, uh, New Testament and Old Testament figure in, in the Bible. And so whenever we try to say, make our own standard of who's actually in, and who's actually out, we become just as exclusive as the, as the people that we say are exclusive in different ways. Tim Keller says it best whenever he says that um, Christianity, um, Christianity is the most inclusive exclusivity that there is in the world. Why? Why? Because everyone, Everyone gets in the exact same way by grace through faith, by humbling themselves, humbling themselves and saying, I am only getting in because God has revealed himself in scripture. And I, and I am saved by grace through faith alone, by grace through faith alone. And that's how you get in. And that's how everyone gets in. So let's go back to the warning. Let's go back to the warning. In verse 42, there's a very specific warning uh, that I want us to really drill down and understand. Verse 42 says this, I know that you do not have the love of God within you. And what's so important about this is oftentimes in our cultural moment, we think that we can dupe God. We don't say that out loud, but a lot of our actions claim that we can dupe God into thinking that we have a relationship with him. 
we treat G following Jesus kind of like a wizard gives an incantation over a, a, a religious ceremony and bada bing, bada boom, you're in. You're in. And why should we actually do that? Why should we treat God, a relationship with God, any different than we treat a relationship with any friend? Now imagine, and I, I kind of alluded to this earlier, but imagine you had a best friend. And you had an acquaintance, and y'all quickly hit it off. You sh had everything in common. Y'all are share sharing things, you're having meals together. And for three months, you're just like, man, this, I would call this person my very best friend. Imagine that happened. And then all of a sudden, out of the blue, ghost, just absolutely ghosted. And you're like, oh, man, well, what happened? And you text them and you call them and no, no response, no answer. You pull up to their driveway. Maybe something's wrong. And you see the shutters in their house, like closed as you, as you come up and stuff. And, and you're like, oh my goodness, what's going on? And then you see them at Market Street down the aisle and you start walking their way and they start walking as fast as possible. They just leave their car and they just walk out of the store. You know, uh, do you think that person is still your friend? Do you think that person is still someone that you would be like, you know what, best friend still. Man, love that. <laughs> love that person. Absolutely, absolutely not. But we think, we think, we, we, we understand how friendships work logically here in, in this time and place. But for some reason, we have built this thing up in our minds to where, oh, yeah, I'm a friend in Jesus because a long time ago I was at this place and I said, I want Jesus to be my friend. And then I haven't really talked to him since then. But someone told me that I was forever a friend in Jesus, and I haven't talked to him since then, and I don't know what he sounds like, don't know what he, um, don't know what he talks like, I uh, don't know what he wants me to do, I, I know nothing, and that was four decades ago. But I have a relationship with Jesus. Why? Because of that scenario four decades ago. Why do we treat God differently than we treat any other friendship? Do you and I have a friendship with Jesus? How do we know that we're a friend of Jesus? Well, um, the Bible very plainly says, you're in John chapter 15, verse 14, it says, you're my friend if you do what I command you. Oh, Jesus, why did you have to say that? <laughs> why did you have to say that? I, you are my friend if you do what I command you to do. And you say, that doesn't sound like a good friendship. I don't want my friends bossing me around. But listen, no, no, you actually do. Have you ever had a dear, close friend come up to you and just say, hey, it burdens me. It burdens me to say this, but man or girl, I'm saying this because I love you so deeply. And they cry with you and they weep with you. It's like, it's just, it's really hard for me to say this, but I see some flaws. I see some pitfalls. And because I love you so much, I, I don't want you to go down this path. And they weep with you and they cry with you. And they say, I need to confront you on this thing and, and, and know that I'm only doing it out of position of love. How do you respond to that? I don't know about you, but when my friends come to me like that, I, I'm open. I'll receive anything. And this is how the Lord wants to meet with his friends. He says, I, I, I've cast your sin as far as the east is from the west, but yet you're still going down this path. And I want you to, to enjoy me. I want you to have a relationship with me. I want you to experience life, which is truly life. Please don't go down this path. 
There's no condemnation for you. I'm not coming to you with shame and saying, shame on you for doing this. I'm coming to you to wake up to life, which is truly life. And I want you to know and understand what it means to walk with me and to enjoy me and delight with me. That's the commands of Jesus. The commands of Jesus are not trying to, he's not trying to put you under his thumb. They're not. He's trying to give you joy and a purpose. He's trying to show you and to reveal to you what life in this life is supposed to be like. I can receive the commands of the Lord because I know that he's not, he's not on some type of power trip. He's coming to me as a friend, weeping, saying, this is not the way. Let me show you the way. I'm glad to receive the wounds of a friend. Are you glad to receive the wounds of a friend? Do you have a friend in Jesus? Do you have a friend in Jesus? So why would you not be a friend in Jesus? Uh, this passage actually talks about this and we'll kind of conclude with, um, with, it, with these things. How could you not be a friend in Jesus? Remember, we can't dupe them. We, can't ab- we absolutely cannot dupe them. And this, uh, this um, passage tells us that why are you not a friend in Jesus? Because you refuse. You refuse to be his friend. And there's some very real responsibility language right there. I'm just like, if you're, if you're an earshot of the good news of the gospel, that he came here for you, that he is your friend, you have a responsibility to turn to him and to receive it as objective truth. There, there, is, a, there is a responsibility here that I cannot get past. Verse 44 says, um, how can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? And verse 42 says, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. Have you refused to receive this gift? Have, have you refused it? Have you said, you know what? I just don't want to turn to him because you have a responsibility. And knowledge comes with responsibility to change and to align our lives with what, whenever God speaks. Number two, number two, why do we not come to him? The Bible says very plainly, Jesus says very plainly here, we rather crave the glory that comes from man over the glory that comes from God. Man, isn't that so true? I mean, I, I tell you what, encouragement for me, uh, it comes few and far between, but whenever it comes, man, I'm, I'm just like, all right, I'm doing it. I was like, I just love that a person said something, like I did something well, like that's cool, that's great. I can work for another decade and with just that as my fuel cell right there. I'm going, I'm working, I'm moving. But that comes with a terrible bite, a terrible bite. That yeah, we need encouragement from people, but does that mean that I actually seek your glory more than I seek the glory of the Lord? Because whenever God speaks to me, he says, you are my son, you are my friend, I'm your master, I'm, I'm moving you, I'm, I'm shaping you, I'm controlling the course of your life. I, I prepared good works that you should walk in them. I delight in you. There's no condemnation for you, Cody. Why do you care about the glory of other people? Why? And right here in this passage, it says that you will not come to Jesus if you seek the glory of one another over the glory that comes from the only true God. Number three, number three of um, why would we not come to him? You search the scriptures in a works righteousness way. And uh, this is a very pharisaical thing. And in our culture, we have dominated like this. I don't even know how much this applies to us right now. 
to where we're like, you know what? I just read the Bible too much. You know, I just read it just too much. I was was reading it, you know, eight hours a day and just listening to it in the ear. And just, I just hate everyone else that doesn't read the Bible as much as me. I I don't know if anyone in this room uh, says that, but Jesus says it because he's talking to the Pharisees and that's what they did. So I have to, so I have to bring it up. All right. Number four, number four, we prop up gurus and leaders over Christ. I think this is very relevant to us. Whenever we seek the glory that comes from other people, and look in verse 43, this is what I mean. It says, if another comes in his own name, you will receive him. He's saying, I've come to you. I've spoken to you. I've revealed myself to you. I am the God. I'm the God of gods, the Lord of lords, the friend of sinners, and I have come to you. And we say, no, not interested. But yet, what do we do in our cultural moment, especially in, Bibli- in, in um, evangelical Christianity in, in our country right now? We're always looking. I'm mean, dude, have you listened to this podcast? Man, have you listened to this, uh, have you listened to this pastor? Man I've, been, man, I've been growing so much from this, listening to this pastor online. Have, have you been reading, have you read this book? Did you read Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self? Did you read the latest John Mark Comer book? Did you read Dane Ortland's book? Did you read this? Have you followed this guru? I, I, I'm following him and I'm changing. Here's a question. What is Jesus teaching you lately? What has Jesus taught you lately? And uh, l- listen, I'm not saying, I know, I know I'm running the risk of being misunderstood. I know I'm running the risk of, of saying that it, you should just punt everything, just read the Bible. And, and no, I think God, through his spirit, uses, uses different Christian books and everything like that. But I think our cultural moment is we have elevated the rise and triumph of the, of the modern self, uh, the rise and fall of Mars Hill. We get into these little things that we talk about all the time, and we don't talk about our life with Jesus. We talk about all our, Christ, our Christian growth life, but we don't talk about our actual life with Jesus. What are you learning from Jesus as of late? Are you always looking for a new insight, a new Christian perspective on the Enneagram, a new whatever? There's a warning. There's a warning that comes from the Lord of hosts here. So let me conclude. Let me, let me just say this. You gotta conclude. It's like, okay, Cody, we're talking about the word of God. I get it. Um, this is what Jesus thought about it. So what do we do? What do we do? Let me conclude with two practical application points. Two practical application. Number one, if you say you believe the Bible, but you're not using it, you don't really believe it. That's a practical point that I want to really point out. If you say that you believe it, but you're not really using it, you really don't believe it. This is the principle that Jesus is laying down. He's saying there's a difference in knowing and knowing. There's a difference in intellectual knowing and action orientation of knowing. Do, do you believe it? Because if you believed it, you need to do this. You need to search the scriptures. My prayer for you, Redeemer, is that we would be a people that are saturated in the word of God, that you would search the scriptures. I played a lot of flag football during the summer growing up in Bowie, Texas. A lot of flag football. So I ran up and down that field all the time, mostly when the other team had the ball. But uh, (laughs) some of y'all got that, all right? So I ran up and down the field all the time. But running up and down the field doesn't mean I was searching the field, except this one time to where I got hit and my contact fell out. And guess what I did to that field? 
I searched that field. I was like in the middle. I was like, stop, everyone stop. Don't step anywhere. And we all got on our hands and knees and people helped me really search the scriptures. Let me tell you, let me ask you this. Are you searching the scriptures like that? Are you getting on your hands and knees? Are you hanging on to every word? Are you just like, yeah, and did the Bible app thing. Did Did the Redeemer thing. I read it. I got the chapter over. Oh man, it only took me seven minutes. Cool. Is that it? Is that it? Or are you searching searching the scriptures. How do you search the scriptures? You do it with diligence, with patient diligence, really, really investigating. It takes time. It takes a lot of time. You say, Cody, I'm not, I'm not like you. I'm not one of those professional Christians. I'm not one of those that are trying to start new churches or anything like that. I don't have time. I have a job. I have, I have work. I have all these things. I, I have things that I need to study. It's like, yeah, I get it. I get it. But all of us can create time. It's called alarm clocks. It's called waking up early. We have all this technology that can use it. Uh, We can use uh, to remind us of how that God is the God who wants to speak to us. Because number three, listen to me. You will search. You will search for what you actually value. Say, Cody, I can't do it. Can't do it. How even? Or how are you actually spending your time? Because what you spend your time in is what you value. And if you valued the Word of God as actually the Word of God, you would make time for it. You would make time. You would you would dig into it. So my prayer and my plea for us as a church is that we are a people saturated in the word of God, in the word of God. And lastly, let me conclude with this. Have you let the scriptures, have you let the scriptures search you? Have you let the scriptures search you? See, we're obsessed with all these personality tests and tools about getting to know know each other. And I like them too. I think it's, I think it's really interesting. I'm not dogging them too much. But um, have we let the word of God speak and saturate the core of who we are as a people? Have you let God's word do that to where it absolutely changes you? Whenever you, do you, whenever you, you are, are scared or anxious, are you going to the word of God? Do you give the scriptures authority over your life to renew your mind by the standard of truth over your subjective feelings to give, give you peace? Are you arranging your life under the umbrella that God is here to speak, speak to me and he is here to search my heart and to uproot all the things that are leading me astray? Is that you? Is that you? I call you to it. The Psalm 139 verse 24 or 23 and 24 says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And if there is any grievous way in me, um, Lead me in the way of everlasting. Is that your heart? I pray that it is. I pray that it is. Because whenever you let the scriptures search you, guess what? They get to define you as well. And what did the, Christian, look at me. What do the scriptures say about you? What do the scriptures say about you? It doesn't say, hey, you need to get your act together, read the Bible more. That's not, that's not what Jesus says to you. That's, that's not what the Holy Spirit is speaking. That's the, that's the spirit of the enemy right now. But whenever you understand what Jesus is actually saying about you in, in salvation, remember, remember this, that there was a lame man that was healed at the beginning of this chapter. And that lame man is a picture of me and you. And, and that lame man, whenever he, uh, whenever he heard the words of Jesus, guess what? He responded in faith and got up. Are you allowing the scriptures to speak over you? 
to change you from death to life? Do you believe that when the scriptures say that you were dead in your trespasses and sins and what you once walked, following the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work and those who are disobedient, but God in his great love for you gave you Jesus to live perfectly in your place, to die the death you deserve to die and to say, I have resurrected from the dead so that you could be with me forever and ever and ever. Does that define you? Or do, does your subjective feelings of how you're doing right now define you? Whenever you allow the word of God to speak over you and to search your heart, guess what? The natural inclination of your life is to say, I'm yours. I'm yours. And that's my hope for all of us in this room is that we dec decree together with one voice, God, I'm yours. And then we devote ourselves to him. Let's pray.